If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11, and if you need a Bible, we'd be glad to uh, pass one to you today, and you can kind of follow along there, and if, if you need a Bible to take home with you, please take those home with you. Um, we'd be glad for you to keep that Bible. Uh, anybody watching um, baseball, the playoffs, Major League Baseball? A few baseball fans here. I'm kind of nominally an Orioles fan. I grew up um, not far from Baltimore, Maryland, on the eastern shore of Delaware, uh, the Delmarva Peninsula, where Scrapple is king. <laughs> and, um, and so uh, we got some Texas fans here. I understand that. I'm sick of Houston cheaters. Um, <laughs> I, I am, uh, I, I mean, the Orioles had, I think they had the best record in, the, in baseball this year, and then they lost in three ga- games, their first three games in the playoffs. So I'm a little dis- disappointed, but I'm kind of nominally rooting for, uh, also kind of rooting for the Phillies, because uh, I grew up not too far from Philadelphia as well, and I had a buddy that worked for the Phillies for a long time, and so um, I kind of follow them sometimes, been to a couple games. Baseball is interesting to me because of the numbers, Now I don't know if you like you know, sort of history and those types of things. But not only there's certain stats and records that, you know, make history, but there's uh, it makes every game kind of fun to watch. What could happen? Um, not only are you playing the game, but you're playing against history. So let me give you the 10 hardest feats to accomplish in Major League Baseball. Um, pitching a complete game shutout, which is where basically um, the pitcher starts the game, nine innings, and uh, no, nobody scores. Doesn't mean the other team didn't get any hits. Uh, since 2010, there's been an average of 51 different pitchers go the distance without surrendering a run. So it's fairly rare. Uh, an inside-the-park home run, that's hitting a home run. Uh, somehow it gets tangled up somewhere, and they go all the way around without hitting it out of the park. So that's fairly rare. A no-hitter is same thing. You're pitching, uh, the pitcher stays in. One of the things about modern baseball is the pitchers don't stay in for nine innings. Used to be years and years ago before my time, um, you know, it was, un- it was not uncommon for a pitcher to pitch nine innings, but that doesn't happen. So it makes it more and more rare to see a pitcher uh, pitch a no-hitter. Now, in a no-hitter, you could have a walk or some other ways that you get on base, but there's no hits. Um, this year, there were four no-hitters in Major League Baseball. Uh, another rare uh, feat is hitting for the cycle, which means in one game, a batter gets a single, a double, a triple, and a home run in the same game. So that's fairly rare. Um, matter of fact, it's so rare that no member of the Miami Marlins or San Diego Padres has ever hit for the cycle. So that's fairly rare. Um, I was going to throw in there Texas just for you, but that's not true. I, I would have just been making that up. Um, four strikeouts in one inning. So four, uh, um, in the big leagues, if you strike out about So it's not super uncommon for a pitcher to strike out the side. But there is a way to get on base if you strike out in Major League Baseball. If the catcher doesn't catch the third strike, then you can run to first. It's kind of like a walk, and if you beat the throw or don't get tagged out, then you can get there. So you could have four strikeouts in an inning. I guess you could have five. Um, A perfect game is very rare. That's no runs, no hits, no walks in a nine-inning game, one pitcher. Um, In the history of Major League Baseball, spanning over 100 years, only 24 perfect games. Uh, An unassisted triple play is where one player makes all three outs of an inning. Typically, it happens in the infield where an infielder would catch a line drive, step on the bag, and then tag out a runner all without throwing the ball to anybody else. Only uh, 15 in Major League Baseball history. Um, Stealing home. Uh, the runner on third beats the, the throw to the plate to record a run. The most famous was Jackie Robinson in the 1955 World Series. There's a picture of that. 
um, a four home run game for a batter to hit four home runs uh, in a game because you really only typically only bat four times. You can bat more, but um, that's only happened 18 times in Major League Baseball history. And then the Triple Crown is more of a season-long record where a player has the highest batting average, hits the most home runs, and has the most RBIs or runs batted in in a season. So those are fairly rare. So if you're watching the playoffs, maybe you'll see one of these things happen. Probably not, but they're fairly rare. But the most rare, probably the most rare thing that can happen in the major leagues is the natural cycle. That, that's hitting for the cycle, which is having a single, a double, a triple, and a home run in the same game, but doing it in that order. First time up, you get a single. Next time up, you get a double. Third time up, you get a triple, and the fourth time up, you hit a home run. Only happened 13 times in Major League Baseball history. Doesn't happen very often. This morning, we're going to talk about a cycle that is much more common. It's called the sin cycle. Uh, Unlike Major League Baseball, it's not a cycle we want to celebrate, (laughs) Um, and it's not super rare. We all sort of struggle getting caught in this sin cycle, and unlike your washing machine, the sin cycle doesn't clean you up. It actually soils your soul. Today in the life of King David, we'll see that David gets caught up in the destructive sin cycle. Let me bring you up to speed in the life of David. Saul who's the king of Israel, first king of Israel, dies in battle, um, 1 Samuel chapter 31. David becomes the king of the southern kingdom, Judah, uh, and eventually becomes, unifies the, the kingdom of Israel and becomes the king over all of Israel. And there's a, a lot of stuff that happens in the first part of 2 Samuel. Let's pick up the story in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. It says, in the spring... At the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. The first thing that kind of stands out to me about this story, and some of you may know where we're headed, but I want to kind of pause right here. It says when in the spring when kings go off to war, David didn't go, did he? Right? He's, he's fallen into letting his generals fight Israel's battles. He's back at the palace. If, if you read through First and Second Samuel, um, it's the first time that I, I don't think any other time where David sends the men without him leading them. He doesn't lead the army into conflict. Maybe he's a little arrogant. Maybe he's tired. Maybe he's complacent. But he chooses not to go lead his men, lead Israel's army into battle. And that brings us to the first sort of part of this story from David's life. I've I've kind of entitled this first part, The Sin. Let's look at verse 2. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. The David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and slept, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanliness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. Whew, that's a lot for four verses, isn't it? I mean, let's just jump right in, right? To me, there's no indication from the text that David was 
necessarily out looking for her. He happens upon a beautiful woman bathing um, on her rooftop or in her garden. I also believe that Bathsheba, she didn't know that David was going to be looking. And she was out on the roof and, and she wasn't like trying to seduce him intentionally, I don't think. Now, it wouldn't be uncommon for someone to bathe outside in this culture behind the privacy of their wall garden or on their rooftop. David sees her, inquires about her, and she's the wife of one of his top warriors named Uriah. If you look at the end of David's life in 2 Samuel chapter 23, it mentions all of the, the Bible calls them mighty men who had helped defend David throughout his life. And you know who the last of David's mighty men that's mentioned in 2 Samuel chapter 23? Uriah, the Hittite. So this isn't just someone's wife. This is the wife of someone who had fought for David, who had defended David, who was off fighting the war that David had called his army to go fight. And knowing this, he sends for her anyway. She comes over to the palace. They sleep together. I really, really wrestled with this next part. I mean, I really got kind of bogged down and, and struggled with this. And here's the best that I, I can understand of this scripture. It's a little unknown whether she was propositioned and accepted an offer or if she, because of David's power and position, really didn't have a choice. Right? I think either way we could say that David took advantage of his position as king. Right? It changes the story a little bit if David just kind of had her come to the palace. It's a little different if they, were, um, if they both agreed, right? He invited, we do know, a married woman to sleep with him. We can't really tell if she was willing or not. Maybe she was happy to have the king's attention, or maybe she had no choice. The end result is that she becomes pregnant. The text makes a point to say that she was purifying herself after her monthly cycle. Now, why do we need to know that, right? Well, there's a couple of reasons. Think about this. First of all, it reveals that she, why she was outside bathing, right? This would be a normal, natural thing. It also shows that she was a devout Jew and adhered to the Old Testament laws of purification. See, there were, there were regulations about whether or not you could go to worship that have to do with the ceremonial cleansings. And so she was a devout Jew. She was following God's laws. But thirdly, and I think most importantly, mentioning that shows that this could not be someone else's child. It's not like she was pregnant before. No, nope, she's getting through the ceremonial washings after her cycle. Look at verse 5. She's referred to as the woman. So to David, she was just some woman. Isn't that what we do with sin? We dehumanize it, try to make it anonymous and impersonal. And after what looks like one night stand, the woman sends word to David that she's pregnant. That brings us to the second part of the story, the cover-up. Let's pick it up in verse 6. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house, wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all of his master's servants 
and did not go down to his house. So David has Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, brought back from battle. I don't know how long that took, right? Under the guise that he was wondering how the war was going. Tell me about Joab, who's the commander. Tell me about the men. How's the war going? Okay, now I want you to go home. But really, it was a plot. He was scheming to cover up, right? He wanted Uriah to go home and sleep with his wife. Now, husbands, if I come home from war, right, and my wife is at home and I can go home and the king says it's okay, I'm going home. I don't know what you know, Uriah was thinking, but I want to see my wife. I would want to be intimate with her. I'm just being candid, right? But Uriah, a man of righteousness, will not do it. Basically, David believed that if everyone knew that Uriah was home for a day or two, they would naturally assume that it was his child and there would be no scandal. But here's what happens. Look at verse 10. David was told Uriah did not go home, so he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander, Joab, and my, Lord, and my Lord's men are camped in open country. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Don't you hate it when you're wrong and somebody else is more righteous than you are? Like, it just kind of heaps on, right? Uriah is an honorable, good man who's loyal to his country, loyal to his commander, Joab, loyal to his God and to his king. So in verses 12 and 13, David tries again to get Uriah to go home. This time he uh, takes him to a banquet. He has him drink a lot, send him home drunk, and he still refuses. Again, he sleeps outside the palace with the servants. Then things get even darker, just when you think, right? Verse 14 says, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. Think of the, just the, the under um, story of that, the backstory of that. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So David sets in motion a plan to have Uriah killed in battle. And that's exactly what happens if you read through the rest of the chapter. Joab has Uriah put into battle where the fighting was the fiercest. Then he withdraws the troops from him, leaving him exposed, and Uriah is killed in battle. Not only does David put into action this sinister plan, but he doesn't even do it himself. Uriah takes that message to the commander, Joab, and David from the luxury and comfort of the palace has Uriah killed. And because of that, we see the next part, the consequence. Second Samuel chapter 11, verses 26 and 27, says when Uriah... Or, 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 26, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And after the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. See, David believes that his plan has been effective. Nobody's any wiser. 
Nobody knows, you know, the sin and then the cover-up and then the murder. Like, nobody knows. This is working perfectly except this. God knows. Second part of verse 27 says, But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. David is described not only in the Old Testament, but also by New Testament writers as a man after God's own heart. And even he gets caught in the sin cycle, doesn't he? There's this idleness when he's not doing what he should be doing, when he's not off to war doing, uh, fighting the battles that kings are supposed to fight. He sends his men. Then it turns into lust and adultery, then deception and murder. The Bible describes this sin cycle in James chapter 1. James says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is full grown, gives birth to death. See, our evil desire, what the sin cycle looks like in our lives, our own evil desires allows us to be enticed, and eventually we sin, and that leads to spiritual death. In David's case, it led to the death of somebody. Very literally, Uriah was murdered. See, if you go where your impulses and urges take you, you will inevitably end up entangled in sin. And if you continue to go where sin wants to take you, you will go to a darker and darker places. And the only way to escape is through intervention. Here's the thing about sin. It doesn't leave you alone, does it? It's like that whisper that you can't help but hear. That continually calls to you. Sin of every kind is an addiction. And sin does not care who you are. Doesn't care if you're the king. Doesn't care if you're the man after God's own heart. Doesn't matter where you live, what your address is. Sin wants to have you. And sin drags you further and further into darkness. Whether you think anyone knows or not. Here's what's kind of scary about this story to me. That David is a man after God's own heart, and yet he is sucked into sin. See, even godly hearts fail sometimes. Even men after God's own heart, even people who really love God, we sin. We make mistakes, right? David was a man after God's own heart, but even he got caught in this sin cycle. Listen to what he writes in Psalm 40. From an honest place, he says, I desire to do your will, my God. Your law is written within my heart. His desire was to do God's will. He knew the man that God wanted him to be, yet he still gave in to the sin cycle. Tim Keller said, the seeds of the most terrible possible atrocities, the capability of the worst possible deeds live in every human heart. Even the best people. If that doesn't scare you a little bit, to recognize that we're all vulnerable to sin, right? To that sin cycle that when our evil desires 
meet the opportunity, and we give in and entice, then we sin, and that eventually leads to death. In other words, God, even godly hearts sin. But the way to avoid the sin cycle is to stop it before it begins, right? If, if you know you're struggling with a certain temptation, then you have to avoid getting pulled into that sin sort of purview. You have to stop things before they begin. Now, the, the overall point I think I want us to think about today is to see that we can all f- fall prey to sin of any kind, right? That, that's any sin. But the context of this story is sexual sin. So let me speak to that very directly. This is going to be fun. Affairs do not typically happen in a vacuum, right? We make ourselves open to sexual sin, and eventually we give in to those desires. Listen, being tempted is not a sin. There's temptation all around us. It's allowing ourselves to be enticed by our own evil desires, and then eventually we we put ourselves in places where we have opportunity. If we continue to put ourselves there, eventually we will sin. Look at David. He was not where he was supposed to be, was he? He was idle. He saw Bathsheba. He didn't avert his eyes. He didn't go uh, back into the palace. He was tempted and then drawn into sin. Now, guys, I know what you're thinking. I would never go that far. I wouldn't cheat on my wife. But I see a very similar path that leads to things like lust, pornography. Let me just kind of lay it out for you guys. Idleness. You ever just idle with your thumb on your phone? Just scrolling page to page? In places you shouldn't be, you become a voyeur of sorts. Isn't that what David was? He peers uninvited into Bathsheba's privacy. See, lust is selfish, but true love is a shared thing between two people, right? Lust is very selfish. It's very one-sided. There's this sense of anonymity. David hid behind the wall of the palace. Today we hide behind the wall of screens. It's impersonal. Again, David, the woman, he didn't even want to acknowledge her name. This impersonal interaction uses others for personal pleasure. Well, who's it going to hurt? Remember, sin will take you to darker and darker places. Who would have guessed that this shepherd boy, who was called a man after God's own heart, would lead a life that would lead to such depravity, sexual sin, and even murder. Job says this about his eyes. He says, I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. Oh, it's just out there, Dave. It's everywhere. Yeah, you need to make a covenant with your eyes. You need to decide now that you're not going to go down those rabbit holes. You have to stop the sin cycle before it starts. Make a covenant with your eyes. You may think, well, no one knows, but that's a lie. Because God knows. And you know. And it's destroying your soul. Ladies, you're not off the hook. Adultery is a two-way street. 
My sense of this story, and this is the part I wrestled with, is that Bathsheba did nothing wrong. That's my general sense of it. I'm not sure. But that's not true in most scenarios. Generally, it's not true in any adulterous, you know, situation. Generally speaking, men, men and women are different. Uh, not always, but generally, um, we get drawn into sexual sin differently. Beth, if Bathsheba did participate with this sin with David, she was seduced by the idea of who David was and who she might be with him, right? That, that's more of, a, of an angle. Bathsheba wouldn't care to look at David naked. That's kind of what I'm getting at. Guys are more, are more drawn into things by their eyes. That's why Job said I had to make a covenant with my eyes. Women are, are more drawn into these kind of situations emotionally. So ladies, you have to be very careful not to start any conversations or relationships with men who are not your husband. You've got to guard your heart. Guys, we've got to guard our eyes. We've got to make a covenant with our eyes. Ladies, do not give to someone who is not your husband your heart and your feelings. Eventually, your heart will tell you that you're better with him than you are with your husband. For you ladies, it's more about who you are messaging and texting. It's less about what images you are seeing. Not always true, but generally that's true. This is true for both. If we're going to avoid the sin cycle, both husbands and wives have to stop the cycle before it starts. Let me give you this advice. Delete the app. Take it off your phone. Take it off your computer. If Instagram or Facebook or Snapchat or access to the Internet tempts you to look at or engage with others in an inappropriate way, delete it. Get it out of your life. It's not worth it. Your friends will live without knowing what you're going to have for lunch today. It's okay. (laughs) It's totally fine. Delete it. There's way too much at stake. Get rid of whatever the source is. If it starts on social media, get rid of the social media. I'm just telling you that's where it's happening today. Stop fishing for images, guys, or conversations, ladies, that might lure you into sexual sin. Here's the truth. Next part. God knows even when no one else does. And that should be enough. If you're here today and you're a Christian, just knowing that God knows, even if nobody ever finds out, that should be enough. You think no one will find out, but God already knows. David thought he had covered it up. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. God knows, and you know, and it's eating you up. It's destroying your soul pulling you further from God. Eventually, God sends a prophet named Nathan to confront David. It's a great story. I don't have time to tell it this morning. I want you to read it. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 12. He tells him the story about a man who took advantage of a poor neighbor. And David, when he hears this story, is mad about it. And then there's this beautiful, dramatic uh, part where David wants this man dealt with as the king. He's like, you tell me who it is, and I will deal with him myself as the king. And Nathan says, you're him. 
David thought he had gotten away with it, but God knew. Now he's confronted with his sin. But that's not the end of the story. Finally, God offers forgiveness for all hearts. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. You, you might think that God would remove David from being king, from that position of power. But he doesn't. David does the right thing in this case. He repents. He changes his heart. It may be because he's found out. It may be that he's had some sleepless nights. We just don't know. We do know that when confronted, David repents, and God offers forgiveness. A person after God's own heart repents when they come face to face with their sin. And God will offer forgiveness to those who truly change their hearts and minds. What a beautiful God we have. One who loves us whether we're good or stuck in that sin cycle. Years ago, when we lived in Virginia, um, I played on our church's softball team. And I was, pretty, I was fairly athletic growing up and in my 30s. And more than that, I loved to compete. Um, one, one game I got up to the plate with the bases loaded. And the game was kind of in the balance. It wasn't decided. I wasn't typically kind of a threat to hit a home run, but if I remember correctly, um, this was a pivotal point in the game, and the pitcher threw me a couple uh, balls, and I remember this one ball came in. It looked big as, as a pumpkin, you know, like, and it was a little bit inside, and I turned on that thing, and I hit it down the left field line, and it went out by a mile. And I was like, a grand slam home run, man, you would have think I won the World Series. Like, I'm like, it's Church League softball, like, but I, you would have thought that I had, you know, over the fence, grand slam, home run. Um, I was as, as amazed as anyone. I ran the bases. It's one of the greatest moments of my softball career. But you know what happened the next time I came up to bat? I had to swing again. They didn't just give me another grand slam. They had to pitch me the ball. I had to take another swing and see what happens this time. I didn't get credit for the home run the last time I was up. I had to go to bat again, and that's the way it is with the sin cycle. If you defeat, if you win today, it doesn't guarantee you're going to win tomorrow. You have to work hard at it. And I recognize that this world is dripping with sin and temptation and all of those things that entice us to go where we know we shouldn't go. But we just have to decide today that we're not going to go there tomorrow. we got to step up to bat. And decide that God and his relationship is more important than whatever's out there that's enticing me. My wife and that relationship is more important, not only to me, but in the eyes of God, than anything else that's out there. Wives, the same is true for you. You might defeat it, that sin cycle one day. You might hit a home run. But those temptations are going to be back. Do what it takes to shut down the sin cycle every time and if you do and if you get caught in that sin cycle remember there is forgiveness for a repentant heart look I, I want you to know today the most important part of this lesson 
I mean, it's scandalous. It's a crazy story. There's so many things to learn. But the most important thing that I want you to go home with is this. If you have sinned, if you've sinned sexually, God offers forgiveness. It's not over. The game's not over. Maybe you've gone down that path. Just repent. Change your heart. God can heal your marriage. As a church, we don't want to be in your business, but we do want to be a help to you when you're struggling. Guys, stop being idle. Find something to do. Read your Bible, for Pete's sake. Get in community with others who will encourage you. This goes for men and women. Encourage you to be the godly husband and wife that God's calling you to be. Accountability. We need that. You need somebody in your life who cares more about you and your purity than whatever it is that you're tempted. That's the other thing that drives me bananas is what we're looking at and the things that we're seeing online or in this world, those people don't care about you. They've got an agenda to either get paid or to ruin, or maybe their lives are already ruined. I I hope they find God as well. But I just want you to know, they don't care about you. It's not real. None of it's real. Get somebody in your life who can encourage you. you. If David teaches us anything, he teaches that there is forgiveness. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for who you are and how you've loved us. Lord, what a, what a crazy story that you have preserved for us in your word. One that is embarrassing and scandalous. And Lord, you still call David a man after your heart. I just pray, Lord, that we, when confronted with our sin, whether, whether it's someone coming to us and saying, hey, you need, look at this. Or maybe our own conviction, maybe the Holy Spirit convicting us, that we would respond as David did with contrition and repentance. And Lord, we know that you will respond with forgiveness. God, I'm so thankful for that. Whatever our shortcomings and pitfalls and sins are, Lord, your love and your grace is bigger and able to pick us up and plant our feet back on the ground. We love you for that, and we thank you for Jesus, through whom all of that grace and mercy appears to us. We pray this in his name. Amen.